This is TCH. Welcome to the Christian's Hour program. Love and War sounds like a great name for a novel, doesn't it? At the same time, it's a great way to sum up the Bible's book or letter of 1 John. If you've read John's writings, you might have noticed that he talks a lot about love. You also might notice that he writes in contrast, light and darkness, assurance and conviction, love and war. This month, Aaron Brockett, lead minister with Traders Point Christian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana, will be helping us wrap our hearts and heads around the contrasts of 1 John. Here's a hard question for you. Uh, make that two. Do you think it's possible to live in the world without being influenced by its values and desires? And how can you balance engaging with the world and abiding in and seeking God? Stumped? Here's Aaron to help find some clarity in the writings of Jesus' disciple, John. We are in this message series called Love and War. We're walking through this short little epistle. An epistle is just a fancy word for letter um, that is at the end of your New Testament called First John. And I said this a couple of weeks ago in setting up this series that most of the epistles in the New Testament, they are named for the geographic region that they were written to. What I mean by that is Ephesians is called Ephesians because it was written to the church in Ephesus. Galatians is called Galatians because it was written to the church in Galatia. But here we've got uh, an epistle that doesn't have a geographic name attached to it. And I think that part of the reason why is because John writes this generally to the church at large. He knew that all Christians everywhere across all time, including us today, we would need what it is that he is writing. And he is writing two primary things that we all need. John writes to give us assurance Assurance that we are loved, assurance of salvation. And he writes to bring conviction. And I said this a couple of weeks ago that there are some verses in 1 John, you read it, and in the same sentence, he offers us this incredible assurance as well as conviction. And both of those things, like the tension between assurance and conviction, is what brings about transformation. That's actually one of the characteristics of John's writing both in his epistles and in his gospel, is that John will often take two contrast, or they seem contrasting, these terms, and he'll kind of set them up, he'll use them together. And so some examples of this would be uh, sin and holiness, uh, acceptance and forgiveness. Uh, two of John's favorites are light and darkness. And that's why we are calling this series Love and War. John is the love disciple. He describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. He's the guy who wrote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And yet at the same time, he wants us to know that we are all in a war. And you cannot win a war you're not aware of. And there is a spiritual element to this war, the principalities and powers of darkness in this present age. There is the tangible war that is in front of us that we see every single day. And then there is the internal war that goes on in our bodies, that goes on in our minds and in our conscience. John wants us to know that we cannot win a war we're not aware of. 
And what I want you to get a picture of is that by the time he writes this epistle, like he's an old man, he's seen a lot in his life. He's been through a lot of battles of his own. And now he writes to us to give us assurance and conviction to face our own battles. Now, as we come to 1 John chapter 2, we're actually just going to study together three little verses, uh, verses 15 through 17. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Quite possibly, these three verses that we're going to look at and study together today are some of the most misunderstood passages in all of the Bible. Not because they're hard to understand. Like when we read this, I, I don't think it's like super hard to understand. It is super hard to know how to apply these three verses. Now, I want to teach these three verses through two different sets of lenses. And whether you would call yourself a non-Christian or a Christian, it is easy to misapply what John writes today. And when we do, it has big implications for each. If you're a non-Christian, it might keep you from giving your life to Jesus even more. If you're a Christian, what it might do is it might alienate you or cause you to maybe let go of some of your convictions in the name of wanting to reach people. Here's what John writes today. Verse 15. Do not love this world nor the things that it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions, sex, money, power. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away. It's another way to say this is all temporary along with everything else that people crave or desire. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Uh, not hard to understand. Super hard to know how to apply. How do we apply it? How do you apply this as a non-Christian? What's your view of Christianity as you read this? It could be very, very easy to misapply. You, know, you read that and you're like, oh, Christians are supposed to hate the world. That's not what he says. And the other side, you know, it's Christians were like, well, I'm not supposed to enjoy anything in this world. And I'm supposed to just call people out on their, uh, that's not exactly what he says. So let me just go ahead and kind of acknowledge here that this can be a little bit confusing to hear John say, we're not to love the world. Why? Because isn't this the same guy that wrote John 3.16? For God so loved the world. You're like, John, have you changed your mind? John, did you hit your head? You know, it's a, what, 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 which is it? Are we to love the world? Or are we to not love the world? See, in order to understand this packet, passage accurately and apply it effectively, we need to understand what John means by the word love and what he means by the term world specifically, and even drawing the distinction between world and worldliness. This is really so crucial. You know that words can be used in um, different senses. We all know that. So like if I say to you, you know, I love my wife and kids. And then right after that, I say, I love pizza you know that I'm using the word in a different sense. I don't love pizza with the same weight that I love my wife and kids. Kind of reminds me, and, and the way that we use words are super important. Otherwise, it can lead to massive misunderstanding. Reminds me of that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. You remember that old cartoon? And uh, Calvin is pretending like he's in a fighter plane and Cobbs uh, is behind him, you know, uh, being the gunman. And uh, he's the gunner. And, and he says, enemy planes at two o'clock. And Calvin's like, got it. 
what do we do till then? And uh, give it a minute. It'll sink in. All right. So, so the way that we use words is like really, really important. And it's critical to understand. So what does John mean by love the world? Uh, we know that what John writes in other places in scripture and throughout the entire teaching of scripture that we are to love the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. The verse that comes right after that in verse 17 doesn't get as much play. God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but to save. So if God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn, then it's not our job to condemn either, but that doesn't mean that we let go of Orthodox faith or our convictions. What does it mean to love the world? Well, we are to primarily recognize first and foremost that God is the creator of this world. And there's so much in this world to love, that God has sent Jesus to ransom and redeem, that God has created every person in his image. Therefore, that means that there isn't another person that you've locked eyes with, whether they are a different generation, whether they have different politics, whether they see the world uh, very differently from you, they are still uh, uh, worthy of your dignity, value, and respect because they have the imago Dei of God implanted within them. This has massive implications for how we treat one another and talk to one another, regardless of our differences. In Genesis, when God created the world, he prayed a prayer of benediction over the created world. Remember the benediction God prayed? He says, this is good. It is so good. Um, The ultimate compliment that God could pay our human body is that he sent Jesus wrapped in one. There is no other belief system out there in which the divine wraps themselves in human flesh, but Jesus did. When Jesus was crucified and he was placed in a tomb, he didn't say, finally, I can be done with that filthy body. And, you know, he comes back, you know, in some different state. No, he actually wrapped himself in that restored, resurrected, redeemed body. He enters our material world and he will redeem it. He loves it so much. And so should we. Jesus looked upon the people, how? Uh, Not with disdain, but in compassion as sheep without a shepherd. And so should we. The prayer on our lips should be, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. So what does John mean by verse 17? Look at it one more time. He says, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. That's key to understanding how he means the term. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Uh, John is describing worldliness. And that's different than world. So we look at the world as sheep without a shepherd. We have compassion. We're on mission with God to reach people. And then there's worldliness. Here's the definition of worldliness. A system of thinking in which the material world and all that it offers me is all that there is. Therefore, it becomes ultimate in value. And both the hedonist and the moralist can be guilty of worldliness. Here's how the hedonist is guilty of it. The hedonist says, well, what I see, feel, taste, touch, and experience is all there is. And so uh, I'm going to live it up. I'm just going to take this shortcut to fulfillment because I don't believe that uh, God will come through on what uh, he says he will do. And so this is what John is saying we should not love. However, the moralist does this as well. The moralist says, I believe in God. But really when it comes down to when the rubber meets the road, 
Like how I live out my faith doesn't really seem that way. I'm still placing my faith, my hope in functional saviors. And so we're saved by grace through faith, but, but because we're a moralist, then we've got the functional savior of our bank account. How do you know your bank accounts become your functional savior? When it drops below that imaginary amount that you start to panic. That's worship. You're saying, well, I've got to have enough to actually be okay. How, how do you know? Well, um, uh, the, one of the reasons why politics are so divisive in our country is because it's our primary religion whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Like if you find yourself getting just so worked up over it, it's because somebody's messing with your functional savior or your achievements or your fulfillment. And instead of making the gospel of grace the primary thing, a moralist uses the gospel of grace as the backstop. And we say, well, it's there. Um, so if I strike out, you know, it's there, but I'm swinging at this life with everything else I've got. And John would say, that's worldliness too. So someone who is trying to satisfy themselves through hedonism will see this world only as ultimate. Somebody who's trying to justify themselves through moralism will see this world only as wicked. And this is why the hedonist and the moralist both need Jesus. Both need to be saved because both make the world ultimate. Guys, you can be religious and still be lost. This also explains, and I know there's a number of you, uh, if, if, let me speak to the non-Christian here. I've heard this from so many, that uh, one of the reasons that keeps you from faith is because you've seen so many Christians that live a lifestyle that doesn't match what they say they believe. And you would say it this way. Well, I know a lot of people that, aren't, that are uh, not Christians, but they are more moral than many Christians I know. And you're like, that keeps me from faith. And I just want you to know that uh, the gospel message is, th explains that. <laughs> the gospel message isn't that we are saved by God and have this right standing because we're more moral. The gospel of grace is that we're saved by grace through Jesus. And because we are sinners, we are never as good as our accurate theology should make us. But because, uh, because everybody's been made in the image of God, that also means that if you're not a Christian, you are not as bad as your flawed theology makes you. Because Christianity is not so much what we do say and believe as much as it is what God says about us. It is a standing, not an achievement. So does that mean that we, uh, there's a faint clap over here. You, that, that's something you don't know whether to clap or that or not because you're like, I don't know what you just said. And so... <laughs> I'm not trying to throw orthodoxy out the window. I'm not trying to throw convictions out the window. I'm saying that, we're, that it's a standing before God. God. Jesus transfers his righteousness into us. And now because of that right standing, we live our lives out of that as a response, not to achieve, but as an act of worship. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. So that explains why a lot of non-Christians may be more moral than a lot of Christians you know, because there's a lot of Christians who've got a lot of stuff that needs cleaned up. And we are in process. And now here, here's the posture of a Christian. It's not, you know, I'm going to condemn you and judge you because you don't live like me. Now the posture of a Christian should be, and it is a miracle that God has received me. I'm saved by grace through faith. It is a miracle. And you can have this miracle too. I am just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. So why does John, 
Why does John say that we shouldn't be worldly? Well, primarily in a nutshell, this world is fading away. It's passing away. At one time, Jesus kind of addressed all of the worldly worries and concerns that are on our minds in Matthew chapter six. I mean, Jesus knows. He, he knows what it is we're wrestling with. And, and he, he writes these words. He, he says, don't worry about what you will eat, drink, or wear. He says, the pagans run after those things. That's another way of saying they make them ultimate. But your heavenly father knows you need them. And then he says these words in verse 33, but seek what? First, that's an order thing. He goes, seek first, make it primary, his kingdom. So as a, a Christian should, our primary aim, we'll do it imperfectly, but our primary aim to make ultimate is God's kingdom and his righteousness, not ours. And then he says, all these things will be given to you as well. Guys, that's it. That's it. He says, I want you to seek first my kingdom. I want you to have a proper understanding of who you are and who I am and who the world is. And I want you to see the world through the lens of his kingdom and righteousness and, and not through the lens of sin, which is a shortcut to fulfillment on this temporary earth because you don't trust that God will provide it. C.S. Lewis famously said this. He goes, man, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. You aim at earth and you'll get neither. And then John goes on to explain this in verse 17, uh, why uh, we should not make the world ultimate. It's just so, so practical. He goes, this world is fading away. It's temporary. Those desires that you get wrapped up in, that thing that you think you need to find fulfillment, it's fading away. It is temporary. It is not eternal, along with everything that people crave or desire. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. It's just another way of saying, don't trust the temporary to bring a permanent sense of fulfillment. It is a temporary thirst. Don't try to quench it with the temporary solution. See, the term literally means, craving literally means an over desire for something that is good. So uh, we could take any example. Uh, there is nothing wrong with food. Eating to live is great. But we all know living to eat is not. But what, what happens when you're living to eat? Well, you're making it ultimate. There's nothing wrong with money or earning money or making money. Um, you know, some of you are really, really gifted at that. Like there's nothing wrong. Like the money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of it, which is another way of saying making it ultimate. So earning to live, nothing wrong with that. Living to earn, a little bit different, different thing. There is nothing wrong with sex the way that God has designed it. Remember, he's the creator of it. He, authors, he offers us this owner's manual for it within. It is, here's why uh, sex is a big deal to God. Because it reflects the covenant relationship that he makes with his people. And so he says, uh, save it between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. And by the way, it is a really, really good thing. And God invented it. He invented the mechanics of it. He invented the pleasure of it. He didn't give enough credit for that. But when we take that desire and we make it ultimate, how do we do that? We make it part of our identity. We're like, oh, no, no, I've got I've to chase after. I've got to fulfill it every time I have the urge or I'm not fulfilled if I'm not having it or I'm using it to medicate an emptiness inside. We're misusing it. G.K. Chesterton said this, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. There is a spiritual element to it. 
Uh, lust literally means an over-desire for something that is good. So to, to, to live to eat, to live for sex, to live for money, that's, that's worldliness. It's, it's another way of saying, I don't trust God to come through on what he said he would come through for. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'll give you one last C.S. Lewis quote. He said this as it relates to happiness. He says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself. It is not there. There's no such thing. And see, only when you see this world from the perspective of eternity will you see it rightly. And John says, everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we experience, it has been created by God. It is good, but it is fading away. It is temporary. So don't allow the temporary to rob you of the eternal. When all else fades away, make sure that your feet are standing on solid ground. There's a lady by the name of uh, Peggy Noonan, and she wrote this article in Forbes magazine uh, decades ago. And I I really don't know where she is faith-wise, but she writes something so insightful here. She says, I think we've lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated, that in a way life is overrated. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this to be the solitary, poor, nasty, short one. We are the first generation that actually expected to find happiness here on earth and our search for it has actually caused such unhappiness. The reason, if you do not believe in another higher world, You believe this is your only chance at happiness. Then you're not disappointed when the world doesn't give you a measure of its riches. You are in despair. For whenever I uh, take my family to the beach in the summer, have you ever uh, walked into the ocean about ankle deep and you just stand there? And the sand is flush under your feet. You're on relatively level ground. But as the waves wash in and wash back out, what happens? Well, the sand around the edges of your feet begins to wash away. And all you're doing is standing there and the ground begins to be somewhat unstable. And this is just the image that comes to my mind as I think about just an over-focus, whether, whether the side of the rope is more on the hedonist side or the moralist side, it's when we begin to focus too much on what is right in front of us. Really what John is trying to do is he's trying to lift our heads up to the eternal. Guys, what will be true about your life five million years from now? Like live for that. What what will be true? What will remain true about my life when all of this gives out and fades away? See, the truth is not in a set of beliefs. The truth is not in a set of behaviors. The truth is not in a set of feelings or propositions. The truth is in a person and his name is Jesus. And the truth of the gospel says, you don't have to give way to hedonism and you don't have to rely on moralism. Regardless of who you are, you just come. You just come. How does this practically get fleshed out in our lives as we relate to a culture around us that can be so hostile to the things of God? Well, the way of Jesus. Jesus went on a rescue mission to ransom and redeem and restore corrupt tax collectors in a tree and adulterous women who hung out at wells. And he looked at them with dignity and respect. 
and he honored them and he had compassion and he loved them. And then what did he say as he departed from them? Go and sin no more. Guys, it is possible to do both. This world will tell you, you cannot, but Jesus did and we must. And it is the invitation that is open to all. Regardless of whether you would fall into that first camp of non-Christian or that other camp is Christian, if you're a non-Christian, maybe today you're ready to respond to that gospel. To have Jesus become your mediator and advocate before a holy God. And if you're a Christian who's been relying too much on moralism, that you would come back to the heart of the gospel message to recognize it's not because of anything that you can do. It is what Jesus has done on your behalf. Strife and discontentment I cast my every care upon the Lord No matter what obsession Pain or deep depression I'm standing on the solid rock I'm standing on the rock of ages From every storm that rages I'm rich, but not from Satan's wages I'm standing on the solid rock Even though he's gone now I don't feel alone now With comfort came the spirit of the now with this hand to guide me From temptation hide me I'm standing on the solid rock Standing on the rock On the rock, on the rock of, of ages I'm safe from every storm storm that rages I'm reaching love, I'm rich Not from Satan's wages I'm standing on the solid rock I'm twisting in my Savior day by day And close is our relation Firm is its foundation So on the solid rock I, I will stay I am standing on the rock of ages From every storm that rages I'm rich but not from Satan's wages I'm standing on the solid rock I'm standing on the rock On the rock of ages From every storm that rages I'm rich but not from Satan's wages I'm standing on the solid rock Thanks, Aaron. 
Our thanks, too, to Acapella Ministries for today's Music of Worship. I really like the words of C.S. Lewis that Aaron quoted in today's message. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. John's way of saying this is, the world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. 1 John 2.17 John says something more than just believe. John says, does the will of God. That's more than just belief. That's putting action together with what we believe. Are you ready to act on what you believe about this world? About Jesus? For a free copy of today's program, just call us at 515-770-2241. Leave your name and mailing address. We'll send you a CD. It's free for the asking. That phone number again, 515-770-2241. You can also find your own copy at oneplace.org, iTunes, Google Play, or from our website, thechristianshour.org. That's thechristianshour.org. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week for TCH, The Christian's Hour.